Greetings, journeyers, and welcome back to another episode of Read Keeper's Journey. I'm sure after a long break, we're all eager to get back to the story. When we last left the boys, Mike, Steve, and Bear, they had finally reached the Hyperborean capital, Ropenmon, taking them into another leg of their journey, and hopefully one step closer to finding the Anani Trendok, who were able to get them back home. Now, back to the story. Chapter 38 Michael's skin crawled. He itched to kick his horse into a gallop and break free of the crowd. The city was bursting at the seams, and after spending weeks traveling through forests, the throng seemed to suck the air from his lungs. Despite the width of the road, the group was forced into a single-file line as they waded through the crowd. He never considered himself an introvert, but the moment they rode through the gates, he immediately empathized with them. On horseback, Michael could clearly make out the red plumes sticking out of the Hyperborean leader's helmet and corrected his opinion on how ridiculous it looked. Even if he was on the ground, which thankfully he wasn't, he would be able to see that red marker and rally to it during a battle. His fist tightened on his sword hilt as the procession waded through a sea of pointy-eared city folk. Not because he expected a fight, but rather, he seemed to draw comfort from the weapon, like seeing a familiar face in a foreign place. Several yards off to the side, a group of short and stocky Hyperboreans stood in front of a cafe. Their eyes locked on Steve, who rode ahead of Michael. One pointed at Steve and said something that garnered a raucous laugh from the gathering. If his friend noticed, he didn't respond, and Michael thought he looked a little green around the gills. Steve hadn't said a word since passing through the gates, and now he sat hunched over as if protecting himself from unseen blows. You okay? Michael asked, and then again louder to clear the din of the crowded thoroughfare. In response, Steve turned his head and vomited. Several of those leapt back trying to avoid getting shoes soiled. One snarled something about a lectock not being able to hold their ale and stomped off, shoving past his countrymen. I'm fine, Steve wiped his mouth. It's like walking through a boneyard. Everywhere I look, it's... Gah! He spat. It'll pass. Bear, who still walked even in the crowd, handed him a flask of water and patted him on the back. A little ashamed that he was embarrassed by Steve's display of nausea, Michael stole another look at the group of short Hyperboreans to judge their reaction to Steve getting sick. They aren't Hyperborean. They have to be Lektok. Either that or dwarves, he thought. The short, bearded, and burly onlooker stood out among the taller, clean-shaven Hyperborean that surrounded them. Drinking from large tankards, the group stood before a storefront that had walls painted with depictions of types of fish and animals and different sized decanters. Smoke bellowed behind the lectock from a stove where a Hyperborean flipped and seasoned meat as it sizzled. One of the lectock caught his eye and leaned over to murmur something to his companion. They're not staring at me. They're staring at my sword. Michael returned his attention forward, but he could feel the eyes of the two follow him down the lane. Michael's fears kept on needling him to turn around and look at Leander and Xylon, but he refused to give in to them. The two rode behind him, and Michael didn't want to look obvious to the Hyperboreans or give the Metaf reason to suspect something was amiss. He could act like he was checking up on Canaeus, who brought up the rear, 
but decided the idea was only his brain trying to trick him into giving in to the temptation to look back. So far, his fears of the monk revealing them and causing a riot remained unfounded, or at least unrealized. He didn't think he would fully relax until they were beyond these walls and away from these people. And then what? Michael asked himself, After we find Trendog, do I really want to go back under Jack's thumb? And I sit through another history lesson by Mr. Khan, knowing all this exists? Heck, at this point, I can't even be sure Santa Claus doesn't really exist. Work the metal in your hands. The thought drifted through his head. No need dreaming up problems when you have one right in front of you. Michael rubbed at his eyes. A vision of a thick man hammering at an anvil appeared in his mind's eye. The smith exuded a quiet calm as his muscular arms pounded at the metal with smooth, measured swings. The steel sung with each strike, a high-pitched, victorious ring. Among the meticulously clean tools that hung on the wall of the workshop were various weapons, all beautiful, bright, and gleaming. You have a gift for it, I think, the man said without turning from his work. The metal seems to think so, too. He set his hammer aside and picked up the blade with the metal tongs. Holding the metal aloft, he nodded to the stout brick furnace that sat next to the anvil. Would you? Michael grabbed the bellows protruding from the back of the oven and began to work the coals with air that glowed in return. He opened and closed the handle smoothly, giving the warming fire a steady stream of air. The smithy stuck the metal into the fire. Not too hot now. The right temperature is key. Michael finished his statement. The smithy stood straight, placing his hands on his hips. So you were listening. It's hard to tell sometimes. Michael shrugged and continued to work the bellows, noticing that the mechanism produced a constant flow of air whether he drew the handles together or apart. My own design. The smithy smiled, pleased that his impromptu apprentice noticed the feature. It keeps the air steady with half the work. It's all about not wasting your moves. You only have so many swings in your arms per day. You need to use them wisely. That's enough. Michael stopped pumping the fan as the man pulled out the now glowing metal from the fire and placed it on the anvil. You have to watch the color of the steel. It indicates the temperature of the metal. The better you can determine the color, the better you'll be judging at when and where to strike. He took the hammer with a muscular hand and resumed his shaping of the blade. I could talk about this all day, he said, punctuating his words with hammer blows. It's been too long since I had an apprentice. But that's not why you came here. Michael didn't even know where here was. He scratched the back of his head. It all seemed real enough looking forward, but when he looked back, all he saw was whiteness, as if the workshop was the only thing that existed. Look, you are closer and farther from the end of your journey than you can imagine, but you have to keep a cool head about you. If you burn too hot, you'll snuff yourself, and who knows how many other people out. How? Michael hated the petulant sound in his voice, but he was so overwhelmed he didn't care. I just... just how? Our heartstrings get tied to all sorts of stuff. People, places, things. Some good, some bad. 
depending on how many strings and which type get tied to us is our choice. He stopped hammering and looked straight at Michael with warm, kind eyes. It's our choice which strings to keep and which strings to cut. A buzzing grew in Michael's ear. He brushed his hand past his head, trying to chase away the unseen pest. Like I said, the metal seems to think you have a gift for it. The buzzing grew, overpowering his voice. And don't worry. My swords are sharp enough to know who and what to cut. Watch your flank. Where'd you get the weapon? A gruff voice shouted. Michael snapped back to reality to see the Lektok group that had previously stood in front of the bar now walked at the foot of a stirrup. Michael almost laughed at the sight of them, not because they looked humorous, but because before and from a distance he had merely thought they were burly, a word that didn't come close to describing the strength they exuded. Arms as thick as his legs and legs as thick as his waist gave them a squarish appearance, as if they were massive men that were somehow squashed down to half their original height. They were dressed in thick brown leather that creaked as they walked, and Michael doubted he could lift, let alone wear. They smelled of beer, meat, and metal. What? Michael shook his head. Was that a daydream? I didn't feel like a daydream. It felt like... I asked you a question. Where'd you get the weapon? The brown-haired dwarf asked again. You must be rich. Cause no one be stupid enough to steal it and then parade it around in public. So which is it? You rich or stupid boy? It was a gift, Michael said, realizing he was white-knuckling the hilt. Oh, you're gonna swing it at me? His buddies laughed. The dwarf grinned, egged on by their response. You want to dance, little one? It was obvious to Michael that this scenario had played out a number of times with these newcomers. There was no real malice in the accusation. They acted more bored and looking for a good fight to break up the monotony. Being burned by a spark is not a rebuke from the metal. It's just the way of the work. The random thought passed through his head, and since Michael couldn't think of anything else to say, he repeated it. Their laughter cut short. Michael focused on the instigating dwarf, but not so much that he missed how more and more Hyperboreans took notice and began to pool around the scene. Apparently, quiet lectoc were an uncommon sight. The onlookers gathered thick enough that they halted his horse's progress. Michael found himself in a sea of faces, looking back and forth from him to the lectoc. You're quoting the book to me? You're calling me a spark, boy? Sharp enough to know who and what to cut. It was another thought, or was it a memory? Whatever it was, he suddenly knew, knew he should have lost his toe when he dropped the sword through the boot about a week ago. He knew it. But the more he had replayed the scene in his mind, the more he convinced himself that he had only imagined the blade hitting his foot and harmlessly sliding off. The familiar rasp of leather on metal filled the air as Michael pulled the blade from its sheath. The sword caught the light, shattering it into a million sunbeams. The spontaneous audience gasped, and even his accuser's lips parted to see the shining blade. Without thinking, 
but with a profound sense of knowing, Michael stretched out his arm and drew the edge along his forearm. The cold steel sliced through his shirt sleeve, effortlessly separating the fabric in two. The metal felt refreshing in the hot sun as he pulled the full length of the blade from wrist to elbow, an action that should have cut through flesh and sinew and exposed bones. The sleeve fell away as he raised his arm to display the unbroken skin to those surrounding him. Somewhere, the sound of a flapping pigeon take flight filled the stillness in the air. Michael stared at his accuser and held up one of his reins. He presented one of the thick leather straps to the crowd, making sure everyone saw it, and then sliced it lengthwise with his sword, easily splitting it in two. The onlookers cheered, amazed by the apparent magic trick. Ebb. A blonde dwarf elbowed his friend, who still locked eyes with Michael. Ebb. He shouldered the dwarf. Ebb looked around, ready to belt his comrade, until the blonde nodded toward one of the approaching centurions that escorted Michael's group. The mounted soldier pushed past through the crowd, daring any onlookers to protest. The crowd grumbled and melted back into the steady stream of people that filled the street. He looked at the dwarfs, and then to Michael, and finally at the sword in Michael's hand. Michael hastily sheathed the sword. With the moment passed, he felt his face reddening at his display of bravado. He awkwardly rubbed at his neck and looked around, with the split sleeves dangling past his elbow making him feel even stupider. He caught Steve's shaking his head as if to say, I can't take you anywhere but his friend's suppressed grin belied the admonishing look. Michael willed Steve not to laugh and worsen the situation. Ebb and his cohorts turned to make their way back to the bar, but not without him giving Michael one last glare. If there wasn't any animosity before, it was clear that there was now. But thankfully, the city was huge and crowded. The odds of them running into that group again were slim to none. The centurion gave him a quick jerk with his head, a motion that said, move along, and that's the last time I want to see you cause a commotion. Without hesitation, Michael complied. It wasn't like he wanted to cause a scene. It just sort of happened. Not one word. Michael thought sternly, though he couldn't tell who or what the thought was directed at. The group began moving again and Michael finally gave in to the temptation and risked a look at Leander. The monk rode, head down, and a hood pulled over his head despite the heat of the day and bodies pressing around him. He looked neither left nor right, but seemed to be muttering to himself. Another prayer, Michael suspected, but as long as Leander bared his soul only to Trendok, Michael didn't care. His eyes flicked to Xylon, whose look was unreadable, and Michael didn't want to take the time to try to decipher what was going on in his head. He turned forward before he could see if Canaeus was glaring at him in disapproval. Thankfully, and surprisingly, the crowd seemed to thin the further they progressed into the city. Instead of becoming increasingly closed in, the walls and the shops began to fall away, exposing a more affluent part of town. Parks that varied in size sprung up as well as waterways crisscrossed the road and fed the ubiquitous fountains that sustained the population. The city fell away completely as the procession entered a sprawling park. Surrounded by lush, manicured grounds full of statues, gazebos, 
fruit trees, and small streams that cooled the area and filled the air with a peaceful ambience of white noise. Couples spoke softly as they walked the grounds, and Michael spied several small gatherings, each with a few people sitting and listening to one lone figure that spoke before them. Michael expected to see the Metaf relax once they were out of the crowds and surrounded by trees, but if anything, they seemed more tense. He looked around to discern what would set the girls on edge. Everything appeared to be very well cared for. The trees all seemed well pruned and healthy, and the grass and shrubbery were all cut with precision. And that's what the problem is, isn't it? He thought. Back home, the park would be an idyllic example of public grounds. But after traveling through the Metaf forest, this, this was an affront. A tree didn't need to be told how to grow, but he could see the force used to control these living things. Everything in the park grew under a domineering hand that forced and cut them into shapes that were meant to please the Hyperboreans and not the things themselves. It was clear that the Methtaf saw this and despised it. Ahead of them, a vast building grew as they came closer. Formed from massive blocks out of cut stone, the palace sprawled before them with spires and columns. Steve's mood improved with each step they took toward the structure. Now, with room to breathe, Michael gently urged his mount to catch up to his friends. Steve rolled his shoulder and worked his neck from side to side. He gestured to the huge building. See? That's so much better. Back there? A shiver ran through his thick frame, as if a snake had slid across his foot. This is how stone should be treated. Not crushed and mutilated like... Like, like I don't even know, man. It just wasn't right. Well, I'm glad you like it, because it looks like that's where we're headed, Michael said. I felt safer in the forest, Bear said. You mean the one where me and Michael almost got ate by a monster that sounded like you? Steve asked. Bear shrugged. It didn't try to eat me. Probably because it was afraid you were going to eat it, Steve said. Michael smiled as the two's bantering faded into the back of his mind. They were his saving grace. The world could be burning, and these two would somehow effortlessly crack jokes as they roasted marshmallows. He focused on the palace ahead. Bear was right. He felt safer in the forest as well. He watched the building grow before him. At least a monster was a threat he could see, something he could fight with his own hands. He knew he wasn't any good at the social games. That became painfully obvious with the scantest look of his popularity, or lack thereof, back at school. If he didn't know how to navigate the pitfalls of social interaction on a high school level, how could he ever hope to hold his own when dealing with royalty? As ridiculous as it sounded, they may have to rely on Zoe's diplomatic skill. Hey, Steve said, breaking Michael's train of thought. Don't worry, Mikey. We got this. We stick together and we'll watch each other's back. I mean, what's the worst? Don't you dare say it. Yeah, good point, Steve said. Bear patted Michael's back with a giant paw. Michael nodded his head several times and took a deep breath. We got this, he told himself. It'll be fine. We totally got this.
That's all for this episode, Journeyers. But don't worry, I'll be back next week as I resume the Tuesday deployment of my podcast. I'll say that five times fast. Sorry for the delay, guys. I had to take a break. It was Christmas, New Year's, and the world's crazy right now. Anyhow, it's good to be back. And next week, we're going to see the world through Leander's eyes as he deals with the knowledge that men now walk the earth. And we see if he can keep his secret once he's out from under Zylon's watchful gaze. So until next week, thank you for listening and be good to one another. <laughs>